You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tara Parker-Pope, editor of the Wellbeing section here at The Post. Nearly 85 years ago, researchers at Harvard University embarked on a scientific mission to find out what makes for a good life. Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Robert Waldinger, the lead author of that study, who recently wrote a book called The Good Life. Welcome, Dr. Waldinger, it's great to see you. Thank you, it's great to be here, Tara. So I followed your work for quite a long time. Let's just start with the basics. What does it mean to live a good life? Well, what we found was that there were two really strong components of a good life, predictors of who would be happy and healthy. The first was taking care of our health, that it really matters. All the things that our grandmothers told us, you know, about exercise and eating well and not being overweight and not smoking, not abusing alcohol and drugs, all that. But the thing that we did not expect was this finding that our relationships with other people don't just make us happier, they actually keep us healthier and they help us live longer as we go through life. That was what we didn't believe when we first began to see these findings come from our study. Do you think that people are a little confused about what makes them happy? You know, we, we have a certain idea of the things, if only I could do this, I'll be happy. Do you think we're a little uh, maybe misguided about what we think happiness is really all about? I think we are in part because we get so many messages all day long from our culture, from the media, about what's supposed to make us happy. I mean, if you if you look around, we get messages that if you buy this car, it will make you happy. If you serve this brand of pasta at your dinners, it will make you happy and your family life will be great. That we get we get all these subliminal messages that we're supposed to consume things, that we're supposed to have a lot of money. Um, that we're supposed to achieve a lot. And actually many people think they're supposed to become famous in order to be happy. Um, So we get these messages and it's very difficult to counter those messages with the truth of what people actually find contributes to their well-being as they go through life. And that's why our study, you know, which has followed the same people year after year after year for 85 years, that study is so unique because it shows exactly what happens to thousands of people as they go through their lives. Well, let's talk a little bit about that study. So it started with, in 1938, with 700 boys, right? And you, you know, there were brain scans, there were surveys. Um, Tell me a little bit about how that study was conducted. Sure. Well, it started as two studies that didn't even know about each other. A very privileged sample of Harvard College undergraduates one third of our group and a very underprivileged group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods and most troubled families. Both studies were asking the question, what helps young people thrive as they grow up? And particularly with the inner city group, the investigators wanted to know how some children who are born with so many strikes against them. How do they manage to stay on good developmental paths? And then we brought in the 
spouses and we brought in the children. So we have gender balance now. Um, and so the study was unique because it was a study of what goes right in human development, not what goes wrong, which is what we normally study. Now, there's some fun facts about this study. Uh, John F. Kennedy was part of the study, correct? And Ben Bradley. Yes. Um, yes. So, so tell me more. How did you go from, you know, a group of, you know, white men? You said you brought in their wives. I mean, how did you, how did you uh, think about diversity as the study evolved, so that the, that the findings would mean something to all of us? Yeah, really important. So. In 1938, the city of Boston was 97.4% white. And so the waves of migration of people of color came to Boston after World War II. What that meant is that if you wanted to start a study in Boston in 1938, you had basically Caucasian people. What that meant was that we needed to also collaborate with and and rely on other studies of people of color of of people all around the world from different cultures so when we present findings particularly in this book we are careful only to present the findings that have been corroborated in studies of other diverse groups not just our own so when you look at the, the different groups, the disadvantaged children in the study and the people with more privilege, did you find that were people who maybe didn't come from great circumstances as likely to be happy as others? What were, what were some of the findings about the economic disparities? They were that social class did not determine your happiness level, that the two groups were about equally happy. And so that means in each group, there were some very unhappy people and some very happy people. That said, poverty is grinding. Poverty makes you unhappy. But our group, because of the era they were born in and because they were all white, they had more opportunity. So they could eventually grow up and make a decent living, uh, buy homes in decent neighborhoods where their children could get educated. All of that meant that they could live the, the American dream in a lot of ways. And we know now that many people cannot do that. But by and large, money was not the determinant of what made you happy at all. So what were some of the things? We've talked about relationships were important. What are some of the other findings from the research? Well, having a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. So uh, people who love their work, or if they didn't love their work, they loved the people at their work, that those things mattered a lot. That for many of our people, volunteering for causes that they cared about, uh, mentoring the younger generation, uh, being a good mentor at work, or being a good boss or uh, being a good parent, all of those things were, were contributors to what helped people feel that their lives were good, were meaningful, particularly when they look back on their lives. When they were in their 80s, we asked them to look back and ask them what they were proudest of. They always mentioned the people in their lives. So we're living through difficult times right now. You know, we've just had recent horrible news about shootings. 
Uh, people are coping with climate change. There's a lot of fear and worry about that. We've seen, you know, some, there was a terrible uh, police uh, investigation going on right now where somebody died. And, uh, you know, the people in your study also lived through hard times. They lived through war. What can you tell us about, you know, these sort of external factors that cause us a great amount of anxiety and how people can cope and get through that and still find a sense yeah. of well-being or happiness? So our original participants lived through the Great Depression. They grew up during the Great Depression. The Harvard men were all of an age where they all went to war in World War II. And the inner city men were boys during World War II. Again, big global crisis. When we asked them afterwards, particularly the soldiers in World War II, how did you get through it? And we asked people, how did you get through the Great Depression? everybody mentions their relationships the support of my community the people back home writing me letters when i was in combat the uh, my fellow soldiers um, when it was the great depression it was that all my neighbors got together and helped each other out and shared what we had so it was these connections that got built that helped people through the hard times and as we know you know, hard times are always coming our way. No one could have predicted the pandemic. And many of us found that we leaned on our relationships during the pandemic to help us get through. And that's one of the things that was so hard about the pandemic because we were feeling isolated as well. So let's talk exactly. a little bit about, more about the relationships. You know, we have platonic friendships, there's romantic relationships. I think a lot of us seem to think that the romantic relationship is the ideal sort of goal in life. Um, what, do you, what can you tell us about friendship and, and maybe people who are single and don't have a romantic relationship in their life? Yeah. Well, the bottom line is that these benefits that I'm talking about can come from any kind of relationship. And so you do not need an intimate partner. You don't need to live with anyone to get these benefits, that it has to do with the warmth and the closeness of connections. So that can be friends, other relatives, can be colleagues at work, They're at people in the community who you know through volunteer work, so many places you can get these, these benefits. Um, and that's important because some people feel like if I don't have an intimate partner, I'm out of luck. And our study tells us loud and clear that is not true, that, that it is really about warmth of any kind of connection you have that matters. Do you have any um, information about, you know, non-human relationships, about our dogs and our cats and our pets? Do, they, do those relationships count? <laughs> You know, we, we don't, we haven't studied that, although sometimes people would mention it to us, uh, but we didn't specifically ask about it. We do know there is research that shows the great benefits of pets, of our relationships with animals. We, can, we know that when we pet um, a dog or a cat, you can feel your body calm down. Um, so we know that those benefits are there and, and probably there needs to be more research on exactly how this works and and what the benefits are. Yeah, I know a lot of animal lovers would uh, definitely want to see that research because I think our pets yeah. got to see the pandemic. You know, many of us. Um, tell me about uh, this term you have called social fitness. You talk about the fact that we make time for physical fitness, 
but maybe not as we maybe we don't prioritize our relationships. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of social fitness? Yeah, we use the term social fitness deliberately to to make it analogous with physical fitness because, you know, with physical fitness, if I work out today, I don't come home and say, I don't ever have to do that again. Right. We know it's a practice of maintaining our fitness. And what we find is that the same is true with relationships. When I was in my 20s, I thought, well, I got my friends from school, from college. You know, I have people I hang out with. They're always going to be there. I don't need to do anything specifically about that. But what we know from following all these lives is that perfectly good friendships and relationships can wither away from neglect. And mm -hmm. so what we talk about is this idea that, that friendships are this living dynamic system that need to be maintained. And what I will say is that it doesn't have to be through some massive Herculean effort. It, it, it isn't that way. We can do tiny things. Like, so for example, after you listen to this broadcast, you can take out your phone, think of someone you miss, someone you'd like to say hi to, just send them a text, send them an email, and just say, hi, thinking of you, just wanted to say hello. That's all you have to do. And you will find that much more often than not, you will get something back that's positive and people are happy to be in touch. Those are the kind of small actions we can do to maintain our social fitness. Yeah, I wonder, do, do people maybe not, I wonder if we understand how those small gestures feel on the other side, or if we maybe devalue it. If I don't have an hour for you, if I don't have an afternoon to go on a picnic, we should probably just skip it and, and try to think of a time in the future where we can be together. Right, and, and actually, you know, we did a challenge um, in the New York Times. I hope it's okay to say that. And the challenge included a, an eight minute phone call. And the idea behind the eight minute phone call was just what you're pointing to. It was, we're gonna, we're only gonna have an eight minute phone call. So that means you don't have to worry that we need an hour. It's only gonna be eight minutes. And I think what we find is that if we, if we do small things and we set our expectations in small ways, that it doesn't feel like as big an undertaking and therefore we're more likely to actually do it, to have a quick phone call, to have a quick email exchange. So it's really important to, to try to remember that, that, that um, you don't need to set aside vast amounts of time for this kind of fitness activity. Can we talk a little bit about loneliness? I mean, how, how significant of a health concern is loneliness because there are a lot of people who might be listening to this saying, well, you know, I find it difficult to make friends. I live a pretty lonely life. What do you have to yeah. say to those folks? Yeah. Um, first of all, I would say you are not at all alone. One in three people on the planet says that they feel lonely. So this is a pandemic. It's, it's everywhere. What I would say is, first of all, it's hard. And so, uh, Remember that it's hard. Remember that you're going to feel some resistance and some maybe some fear about trying to reach out, trying to make a, an overture towards someone. Some of the ways we know that work are by putting ourselves alongside other people, doing something we enjoy or something we care about. So 
if you were to join a gardening club or, uh, you know, a bowling league, or if you were to join a group working to combat climate change, volunteering for a political campaign, all of that can put you next to other people who care about the same thing. And that becomes a natural place to start conversations. And what the research shows is that if you do that, if you put yourself next to others doing activities you care about, you're more likely to gradually develop deeper conversations and in a few cases to develop ongoing friendships. So that's one thing. The, the other thing I can say is that finding ways to be of service can help you if you're lonely. So one, one maxim is if you're lonely, go and spend time taking care of other people who are lonely. You know, if you went to a retirement community where some people are lonely and spent time, um, that can be a wonderful experience for everybody. If you can be of service by uh, lending your talents, let's say teaching English as a second language to people who really need that skill or reading to children. You know, we there are projects where older adults read to preschoolers and everybody is thrilled with it. The preschoolers love it. And the older adults are, are thrilled to have these little beings to interact with and read to. So again, the idea is see if there's a way you could lend your talents to something in a place where people need you. And that can go a long way to easing loneliness. So it doesn't have to be a best friend or a relative. It could be a stranger. It could be volunteering at a soup kitchen or, like you said, reading to children. That that level of human connection is enough to improve your well-being? Oh, absolutely. And particularly if you can go back and do it again and again so that you see the same people repeatedly. That helps us begin to feel more connected. But, you know, making nice conversation with the person in the coffee shop in the morning who gives you your coffee, that helps. Um, talking with the postal delivery person, talking with the cashier at the grocery store, all of those things can give us little hits of well-being. So are there differences between the way women and men manage relationships, uh, <laughs> manage friendships? We read a lot of that maybe men are not as skilled at maintaining and developing friendships. Yeah, yeah. And the research says there are these differences between men and women, but the differences aren't enormous. That particularly men do care about relationships. Um, the myth can be that men really don't care and, and so women are just better at them. Men often do relationships differently. And again, these are stereotypes, but but they, they're common patterns. Men often do things together with other people in their relationships. Women are more likely to sit and share personal matters. And that may have to do with how we were raised and socialized as kids. But it, it doesn't mean that you can't learn to do other things in your relationships. And it doesn't mean that women are necessarily better than men at relationships. It just means that it's different. You know, I know you started the study 85 years ago, but over those years, did you learn anything or, or have any members of your study who were part of the LGBT community, LGBTQ community, or same-sex couples? Are there, you know, lessons for, for that community to take from your research? There are not. 
And I'm so sad about that because, you know, if you think about it, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, very few people could could risk being open about being LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. They just couldn't do that. And so we knew that we had gay people in our study, uh, but that they weren't able to be open about it. And that's a great source of pain. In our second generation, we have gay people who are able to tell us about it. And no doubt we have gay people who don't feel comfortable telling us about it. So what we wish we could have done is to really delve deep into the lives, uh, into the gay experience, the LGBTQ experience. We weren't able to do that. But fortunately, now there are studies who, that do just that. And, and that's so helpful for research. So we have an audience question uh, from Nancy in California. She asks, what role does religion play in contributing to a sense of well-being? And I would add yeah. maybe spirit, spirituality as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I love that question. So we ask people, are you religious? Uh, do you have a spiritual practice? And people could say yes or no, and they could tell us what their practices were. It was kind of half and half, and that the people who were not at all religious or spiritual by their report were not happier and they weren't less happy than the people who did say yes to that question. What we found was that the people who did have religious, spiritual practices or beliefs found those beliefs a comfort, particularly in times of stress. But we, when we compared our groups, we did not find a difference in happiness between the people you know, who were spiritual, religious, and the people who were not. Was the strongest finding of this study that when all is said and done, that it really was the quality, it was relationships and human connection and, and social fitness that was influencing people's, that influenced people's happiness? Yes, and taking care of your health mm -hmm. and having your basic needs met. And that's where this issue of privilege and inequality is so important, that those really, really matter in our lives. We have another audience question uh, in the area of social media uh, that gets to this idea of social media and human connection. How has happiness changed with social media, AI, chatbot? How has that influenced our relationships and our well-being? Yeah. What we find is that how we use social media makes a big difference in whether it makes us happier or less happy. Specifically, if we use social media actively uh, to connect with other people, that tends to make us happier. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine during the lockdown, during the pandemic, um, reconnected with his elementary school buddies and he hadn't seen them in years and they reconnected on Zoom. They've started having coffee every Sunday morning on Zoom and they are thrilled with these rekindled connections. On the other hand, if we consume social media passively, and by that I mean if we watch other people's Instagram feeds or Facebook pages, what we're doing is we're looking at other people's curated lives. Um, I don't post the pictures of my life when I wake up feeling depressed or confused. Uh, I don't do that, right? 
So we, we only post our happiest pictures and it can give other people the impression that they don't have life figured out, that, that some people are happy, but I don't have it figured out. That lowers our mood. And we know that um, adolescents are particularly susceptible to getting more depressed and more anxious when they scroll through social media feeds in this way. So active use can increase our well-being. Passive consumption can decrease our well-being. So have the findings of this research, have they changed the way you live your life? Have they had a, a, an effect on you personally? They have. They really have. So, you know, I'm a Harvard professor. I mean, I could just work 24-7. And I was working a lot, particularly once my children were grown and they left home and they weren't dragging me off to soccer games and doing other things. Um, my wife and I both found we could work all the time. And, and what I find now is that I have to be very intentional and think to myself, okay, who have I not seen in a while? And how can I reach out to them um, to take a walk, to go for lunch, to have coffee, to, to do something? And so what I do is I, I deliberately say, I am not gonna work. I am not gonna do chores around the house. I'm gonna connect with people. And it's made me much more aware of my own need for social fitness, and, and I live my life differently because of it. So where does this research go from here? What is next for this study, for you, for our understanding of well-being and happiness and living the good life? Yeah, well, right now we are collecting more data, even as we speak, from the second generation. We're asking them particularly about two things, about what COVID was like, what the lockdown was like for them. And we're asking them about their social media use, just as you were asking about before. Um, and so those are two areas that we're starting to investigate further. And what I see for us is more exploration. So what's happened in our study is we've brought on new methods, new ways of looking at well-being as they get developed. So, you know, we draw blood for DNA now. DNA wasn't even imagined in 1938. We scan people's brains in the MRI scanner while we show them happy and sad pictures to see how their brains light up. There's so many new ways of measuring well-being that we keep incorporating. Now we're using artificial intelligence to analyze the language that people use when they answer our questions. So these are all some of the directions that we're engaged in going forward. That's very exciting, actually. Um, so before we run out of time, what is your final, what word do you want to leave us with? What thought do you want us, us to think about or do after we're, we finish watching this program? Two things. One is first, remember, you're nobody's happy all the time. So don't worry that you're not happy all the time. No life is without challenge and difficulties. And that's really important to convey. And then just think about who you could connect with and do something small today to reach out to somebody you'd like to strengthen that connection with. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Waldinger, for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Well, this was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.